it's important to remember how we got here. The backdrop to Haggai is Judah, which is Israel's southern kingdom, has just been exiled by the superpower Babylon in 587 and 86. And in this time, the temple that was built under King Solomon has been thoroughly and totally destroyed. And now God's people find themselves living under the almost unbearable, crippling weight of their sin, rebellion, far away from their homeland, with almost no way in their imagination can they conceive a way back. The temple was central to their vocation, to their identity, to their purposes. The temple was the thin space where God made allowance for His holiness to come near to His people without destroying them. And so no temple, no presence of God. No presence of God, no peculiarity as a people. Which then, if you continue down that logical line, no sense of identity, no sense of purpose, just no sense. Everybody say no sense. And then there's a shift in global dominance and the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire and God raises up or, or by His Spirit moves on the heart of King Cyrus and King Cyrus issues a decree that allows some of the, the exiles of Israel to return home to begin to build on the temple site that was just destroyed some 50 to 70 years before. And so Ezra chapters 1-3 through provide the backdrop to the book of Haggai. God's favor continues to move upon this pagan nation of Persia and under King Darius, He continues to encourage these exiles who have no identity, who are broken by their sin. He, He encourages them to go back to their homeland and to begin to build God's temple again. Haggai and Zechariah are two of Israel's prophets that God raises up during this time to stir His people, to provoke His people. How many know God's people need to be provoked from time to time? And to encourage the people to keep going in spite of great opposition, in spite of their own fears of inadequacy and insufficiency, but God raised up these prophetic voices to encourage Israel to fulfill her task. If you were with us last week, you can check it out on our podcast or our website. Haggai's first message was really about this. Give careful thought to your ways. The prophet Haggai steps into Israel who has been allowed to build in Jerusalem for about 17 years And he's challenging them at the place of their priorities. God's house is in ruins. This post-exilic community is busy building their own little houses with paneled wood. And the prophet Haggai has a slight word of correction to offer. Should all of you be building your own houses while my house is a ruin? And he challenges them. And there's this great move of repentance where the people of Israel who are released under King Darius and Cyrus, they say, you know what? You're probably right. We should probably obey your voice. We should probably put your priorities and thoughts above our own so that this thing can get straightened out. The prophet Haggai confronts them with this reality that it's never enough 
when we do it our way. You earn money, but you put them in pockets with holes or purses with holes. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You eat, but you're still hungry. You, You plant, but you harvest little. All of Haggai 1 is this juxtaposition. When you do it your way, there's never enough. When you do it my way, there's always enough. And then more. This is the first message that Haggai preached to his people. You can check out the podcast last week. This week, we're going to look at Haggai's second sermon. He's got four talks in this little 38-verse book. Today, sermon series number two. Like many of our sermon series, we see Haggai is incredibly successful with what he preaches and teaches. Come on, somebody. That was supposed to be a little bit of a poke and a joke. Haggai picks up where he left off. About four weeks, there's like four weeks that passes between sermon number one and sermon number two. We won't talk about those implications, but he revisits the people who have just been stirred, provoked by the Spirit. They started thinking about their ways and they re-kickstarted their devotion to rebuild God's house first before their own. And right here, about four weeks later, the second word in the sermon series from the prophet Haggai. It says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Layman's terms, speak to everybody. Nod your head at me. We good? The power, the priests, and the people. Ask them. Interesting. Speak to them, but then start with a question. How many know the truth we arrive at on the heels of our wrestling and question usually becomes the more formative truth than if we're just told? Come on, who's ever wrestled with a thing and then submitted to the truth of God and then God wrote that thing on your heart? So he asked them a question, just like he did in his first sermon. Who of you is left who saw this house, the former temple, in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does this seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong. Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedat, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. And what? Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to underscore how many times the personal pronoun active verb, the I will. How many I wills are in this passage? 
How many are thankful we serve a God of when he says, I will, we can take it to the bank that he will? But how many know there's always a delicate balance in God's economy and kingdom? The I will is always an invitation to the we will in light of the I will. The I will is an invitation to participation. God's Spirit is moving, but God's people aren't stagnant or static. It energizes them to work. So in this moment, there's this incredible promise that Haggai reminds God's people. Four weeks in, be strong. Come on, be strong. Be strong. I got the governor, I got the high priest, and I got the people. Be strong. Now, I love the book of Haggai because he gives us these markers. And unlike so much of the Old Testament and New Testament, Luke does this a lot in the New Testament. Haggai gives us markers to distinguish times and seasons. In the, what did he say? In the 21st day of the seventh month. Well, we know this according to our modern calendars to be loosely or almost exactly October 17th, 520 B.C. And I want to just say, that beyond just being a Bible nerd, what I love about the marking of time is that God is always breaking into times and spaces and places with people for His purposes. He's not the God of the general, He's the God of the specific. He's the God who didn't just move once, He wants to move again and again and again until He reclaims all of the earth for the glory of His Son. The seventh month. 21st day. Why is this significant? Well, for you Old Testament scholars, the 21st day of the last day of the seventh month commemorated the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. What was this ancient Israelite celebration all about? It was about commemorating the exodus from Egypt. Remember when God raised up Moses and he parted the Red Sea and he destroyed all ten of the Egyptian gods and the firstborn were slain, but the blood that was put over the doorpost meant the angel of death would pass over the people of God and they're rescued and delivered and not just rescued and delivered, God moves on the Egyptians' hearts and they load the Israelites down with gold and jewels and treasure and they don't just leave the way they came, they leave full, they leave rescued. This is, this is Egypt. This feast was to remind Israel of God's faithfulness when they were a mobile people that He was faithful to provide for them in the wilderness. In fact, Leviticus 23.43 says, when you celebrate this tabernacle, this feast, you remind the generations after you that God was faithful to rescue you from slavery. This is the day the moment Haggai's preaching in. So we have to remember, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. It's also significant because what was Haggai's first sermon to the people? You're busy building your own house while my house is ruined. So it's also agitating the prophets have a way to do that. That you're supposed to be celebrating this festival anyway. Get out of your paneled houses into the booths so you can remember again who you are as the people of God. And just this isn't in my notes, but very briefly, I'm going to come over here. I love the tactile, kinetic nature of being God's people. The Old Testament gives us these beautiful metaphors and pictures and feasts and celebrations that don't just engage our head, but our hands and our hearts and our bellies. 
They were feasts. And I want to say that there's something in our day that we, we, I, I want to see God like communion, the Eucharist, where we want to invite people into a full contact participatory story of the gospel of Jesus to engage their heart, head, and hands. Side note, back to the notes. It's also important to remember some 400 years before this day, someone else stood on this temple site. Solomon prayed the prayer of dedication. Here they are, this small, seemingly insignificant, just freshly released from exile people on a mound of rubble. 400 years to date, rebuilding what was once one of the modern wonders of the world, ancient wonders of the world. Do you see the 21st day of the seventh month is not just so that we can read it and go, oh, interesting. It is a moment that is ripe, and the pun is intended. The Feast of Harvest as well. This moment is ripe with hope and promise. And I might propose to you today, we are in a moment that is ripe with hope and promise. God is not done with us yet. And even though they're at this site of this glorious temple that once was, and they're having to clear the ruins and the rubbles, and they don't have the resources that Solomon readily had available, beloved, do not despise the moment that we live in. Don't just stay looking, navel-gazing, oh, but it's small and it's silly and it's not impressive. Get your eyes up on the one who's saying, build, because I'm with you. I love it. He says, ask them, who is left who saw the house in its former glory? They'd have to be pretty old, probably in their 70s or 80s, if you do the math. Who was left who saw Solomon's temple before Nebuchadnezzar came and demolished Jerusalem? Doesn't it look like nothing? Doesn't it look like a wasted time? Do you see Haggai? Why does he got to start his second sermon on such a downer? If you look at the scene from 17 years earlier when the exiles first came home to Jerusalem to rebuild, look at this scene in Ezra 3. Many of the older priests and the Levites Family heads who had seen the former temple wept out loud. When they saw the foundation of the temple, remember they saw Solomon's glorious, huge, magnificent, more gold than could be weighed. Silver was like a throwaway thing because of the opulence of God's abundance under the reign of Solomon. And here this older generation sees this, the, the, this humble, foundations of the temple being laid they're weeping but many others they were shouting for joy no one could distinguish between the shouts of joy and the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away and I might propose to you oh my goodness humbly but boldly we're in this moment There are many in the older generation, 60, 70, 80, 90, who lament at the state of the church. 
They lament when they read Barna's statistics of the generation that's seemingly moving away from the church and the gospel. There is a generation that weeps. Am I talking to anybody? At the state of culture and the nations. And then there's another generation that, that maybe they're not receiving the, the faith that was once possessed and being passed down, but they're hungry to, to rediscover Jesus and the Gospel and what does it mean to be a spiritual family. And they're, they're excited that there's a moment. It, 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 of course, the devil always breathes on moments and takes things to the extreme, but there's a moment right here where there's this hunger Those who read these statistics, if you're on the ground, there is an insatiable hunger in a generation for a father, for a mother, for a family to belong to, for a purpose to live for. And so even though there's a generation that weeps because of what wants and now is in ruins, there's a generation that's hungry. And many times what it just sounds like is a bunch of noise. Unless you lean in with some discernment. And it's interesting that this weeping scene is depicted three times in the Bible. Here in Ezra, Haggai chapter 2, and also in Zechariah 4. But what's the point? Why would Haggai include this downer moment? Why would he have this moment where, who, why would he start his second sermon with, who remembers how it once was? I am convinced it's this. God wants His people to realize that when we fail to live out His covenant and we choose to rebel and sow to our flesh instead of to His Spirit, when we choose to build according to our own plans and patterns, when we choose to live in compromise to the covenant, that it always produces destruction in our lives at some point. Why would Haggai start with, do you remember how it was? Because he does not want God's people to be okay with redoing the sins of their forefathers, but to move forward once and for all in righteousness and truth and justice. God wants his people to have a revelation that sin stinks. Come on, somebody. I was going to say a different word than stinks. It stinks. And it's almost like he's provoking them to remember what got you here will perpetually keep you here until you say yes to my covenant, until you say yes to doing it my way. And so he says, not to shame them, but to remember what got you here. I love the hope that Matthew, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever compiled with Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I just have to believe when Haggai provokes his people, it's to, 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 to stir again the spirit of repentance that, man, I don't want to keep living the way our forefathers lived because we'll always end up in ruin and rubble and exile. So Jesus, his first word out of his greatest sermon is, those who are poor in spirit, those who are aware of their brokenness, not shamed by it and crippled by it, but those who acknowledge, apart from him, I have no good thing. Apart from him, I can't make sense of the mess that I've created in my life. Apart from him, there is no hope. But Jesus gives a word to us today. Blessed are the poor in spirit who acknowledge that spiritual and perpetual bankruptcy. If you acknowledge it, don't stay there. I will give you the kingdom of heaven. 
our inadequacy and brokenness do not exclude us from participating in God's kingdom. They qualify us for it if we'll acknowledge it. So we ask, who was left? Who saw the former glory? It's not the end of the story. If we confess our sins, acknowledge our spiritual poverty, the Lord cleanses and washes us and gives us another go. Ah, that God's people find themselves back in Jerusalem at the very place some 400 years previous, getting another go at it, speaks of a God who is infinitely merciful, kind, and loving. Come on, who in this room has ever received a second, third, fourth, fiftieth chance? Come on, hands are raised in this house. This is the God that we serve. Our brokenness is not the end. We can't ignore it. We just need to acknowledge it and go on receiving the mercy and grace that forms and fashions us into a new people. Amen. Amen. You may be plagued by worry or doubt or insecurity or sin. The Lord says, look in, but then quickly look out for the solution to your state and condition. Do not let what was keep you from seeing what will be by the Spirit of God and through the grace and mercy of Jesus. So he doesn't just say, look at the rubble. Isn't it pathetic? Aren't you guys glad yeah, I delivered you from exile? This is great, isn't it? I'm super glad. No, it's look, look, look. Look at what sin, look at what infidelity to my, look at when you want to be like all the nations and all the people. Look what happens when you think I'm not really serious about all the blessings I want to give you if you'll obey, but then all of the curses that will inevitably come if you disobey. He says, look at that rubble. Learn from it. Come on, how many know it is not your destiny or inheritance to be a dog that perpetually returns to its vomit? We're to look at the mess and then look at the Savior. That's good preaching. Man. When sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Beloved today in 2019, Cornerstone Church, Church in America, Church in the nation, there is still hope. Look at the mess, look at the rubble. Learn from it and then look to the Messiah, the King. But now, in light of that, don't forget. Come on, someone say, don't forget. I'm not going to dwell there, but I'm not going to ignore that's a part of my history. You hear me? That's where I was. But now, be strong. Come on, someone say that with me. But now, be strong. Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Governor, high priest, be strong, all you people, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you, so do not fear. God is always the one who initiates. Do you hear me? Some of us are pretty presumptuous, pretty arrogant to think we're the nicest, coolest things since sliced bread. When God sets out to act, God initiates the action that's coming behind his initiation. But God initiates and seldom, if not ever, do his purposes materialize without God's people hearing the call and getting to work. And the obvious implication is doing God's work is going to require God's strength. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, duh. 
No, 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 but so many of us, we think we just needed Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We don't think we actually need him to like build the rest of our lives on the truth of that confession. Do you hear me? Jesus is not just interested in what he wants to do with your sin. He wants to take your life and flip it around and make it a light to the nations, to set you up on a hill. He wants to make you salty. He wants to make the integration of his truth and his wisdom and his love and his grace to be a billboard to the surrounding nations and peoples that there's another way to live with Jesus at the center. There is another way to live. Doing his work is going to require his strength. Jesus says, I'm with you in the work. I am convinced many of us who cry out for revival or for a move of God, I love it. We cry out every day, all day, any day. But many of us, I think, have this false idea that Haggai the prophet just kind of hits us right between the eyes. We think if God comes, then He'll just do all the work. It's interesting that the prophet has a word for us. Be strong. Implication. You're about to do something that's going to need strengthening. But don't worry. I'm going to be with you. The fact that I'm with you means it's time to go to work. Do you see that implication? Those of us who are crying out, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, save our families. I agree. We will cry out. We have to pray. Prayer always precedes the breakthrough and the blessing. Come on, somebody. It always precedes the blessing and breakthrough. But we pray, and then as Pete Gregg says, we go where our best prayers take us and we get to work. Whatever sphere or whatever caveat you're in, your workplace, your neighborhood, your network, your friendships, whatever that means, it means that if I'm in God's kingdom, that means God's got work for me to do. Not to be an innocent bystander that sits in the bench and says, oh, look at those guys out there on the field playing. No, he is with me so that when I work unto his glory, he fills my work with purpose for his glory and my good. I'm with you. I'm with you, so get to work. Who needs to hear that today? But Lord, if you're with us, don't you just like... I'm with you so that what you put your hand to is filled with my power and my presence and my provision. I'm with you so that your work actually has purpose beyond your bank account and bottom line. Come on, somebody. I'm with you so that what you do and how you do it bears witness to a God who wants to reign and rule and fill up the earth with his glory. Mm. So, that's a good word. The key thought. Here, the fact that the Spirit is working is shown by the fact that God's people are working not scattered, but in a spirit of unity for His purposes and glory. And one of the things God's breathing on and building is the altar. I know some of you work and can't do it. Trust me, when I get to move down here or whenever God opens up the next phase, we're going to fill 24 hours of times to build the altar. But the spirit of unity that's on this little thing called the altar is breathtaking. The hunger, the longing, beloved, evidence of God's Spirit among us is that we're not just working doing many things, we're doing His thing, and then all that we put our hand to is filled with His Spirit and His presence. And he says, just like I promised you when I delivered you from Egypt. What was that covenant that God promised them in Egypt? If you go back to verse 5 at the end. It was his promise that my presence will be with you. 
I might propose to you today. Remember, Moses has this amazing encounter. He's praying and, um, and interceding and kind of having a go back and forth with God. Moses was pretty bold. And he says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us when, you enter, when we enter into the land of promise, don't send us up from here. How will anyone else know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? Somebody needs to hear this word. What else distinguishes me and your people from all of the people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. I want to propose to you that as we're in this season of rebuilding and building the altar and becoming his people for his purposes, that, that it will never be our product, our preaching style, our worship music. None of these things will at the end of the day be the distinguishing mark that God is with us. You know what distinguishes us as unique and belonging to God? That God is in the midst of us. It's so important that we have that, that vision, that that, that, that truth branded on our hearts, what makes God's people unique is that God is in them and with them. The world does acts of mercy and justice. The world does mentoring. The world does food pantries. The world, the world, the world. And I'm for it. We should join. All of these things, are, they flow out of God's glorious kingdom. But what the world does not have to offer, apart from those who've confessed the lordship of Jesus, is that God is there in his presence and spirit. And God, listen, we have to understand that pre- pre- predominantly it's about his presence. Moses knew it. The Red Sea was cool. The giving of the law, pretty awesome. Seeing God etch out commandments on stone. The fire, the thunder, the earthquake, sweet. The quail, not so great. (laughs) Manna, what is it? All you Bible nerds are getting my Bible jokes right there. For the rest of you, I'm isolating you and I'm sorry. (laughs) Those are all Bible things. Moses knows, but God, Yahweh, at the end of the day, it's you that distinguishes us. Not what we do, or even necessarily how we do it, although those are very important, amen, but it's you. All right, we're on the very, very tail end. This, the prophet continues the message. In a little while, the Lord Almighty says, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land, I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. In a little while. When's he gonna shake? In a little while. When's he going to shake? The bummer about reading prophetic literature in the Old Testament is that many times you're dealing with stages of fulfillment. How many remember the first shaking that Israel saw? Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. Fire, smoke, thunder. Ah, Moses, you go. Not us. We're scared of that big old black cloud that's fiery and lightning-y. Come on, there was a shaking in Israel's history. And that shaking produced the covenant, the invitation to be God's peculiar people. A nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, royal, 
set apart so that God could send them into the earth and bear witness to his rule and to his reign. There was a shaking. How many know that there was another shaking? When the Son of God hung on a cross and he gave up his last breath, there was an earthquake in the land. That's exactly how it sounded. The curtain in the temple, it says in Matthew's Gospel, was torn from top to bottom. And I'm proposing to you today, because it's a prophetic word in the Scriptures, there's coming another shaking. So you see, when you read prophetic literature, there's stages. Many things have happened. There was a shaking at Sinai. There was a shaking when the body of Jesus was being torn open. There is coming a shaking when Christ returns. I love it. The emphasis on a little while, one commentator, Brilliant, says this. It means that every generation must live in watchful expectation. Do you see that? Because he's a little bit obscure in a little while. Well, thanks, Prophet Haggai. That helps us a lot. In a little while means stay awake. Come on, turn to your neighbor and says, in a little while means stay alert. Stay present to what God is doing. You don't know the day or the hour when this final shaking is coming. How many know we feel little rumblings in the earth already? There's been rumblings. There's been little rumblings, little rumblings. There's been little rumblings. But God is going to, there's coming a shaking in the last hour. And what is the purpose of the shaking? Yeah, to wake us up. But I would propose it's actually a manifestation of God's mercy until the last shaking. His shakings are being released right now so that whatever cruddy, crummy imitation foundation we're building our lives on will crumble now so that we can get a revelation of the rock of Jesus that we're meant to be building our lives upon. His shaking, there was another shaking, a violent wind in Pentecost. God's a God, He's a shaker. Come on, he shakes me so that I'll get in shape so I can carry his glory for his purposes in the time in which we live. So there was a shaking. There was another shaking. There were other shakings, but there is coming a shaking at the end of the age. At that time, Hebrews picks up. It's the only verse in the New Testament that quotes Haggai, so we should probably listen to it. This little 38 verse, this is the only New Testament equivalent. Quote, direct. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Look at the word that he's giving Haggai and that God through Christ is giving us today. Therefore, read this with me. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Come on, how many know there is one kingdom that cannot, will not be shaken and overturned? And the Lord Jesus Christ is inviting us into full blast participation of His kingdom right here and right now. Through repentance and faith, trust and adherence to the ways, words, and works of Jesus, 
trust in his grace to pardon and cleanse and fill alone, you and I can even now find ourselves in the story of the unshakable kingdom if we worship him with reverence and awe, which is to say, not just in word, but with lifestyle. Okay, what's all this stuff about silver and gold besides that it'd be cool to have some? What do you not have a lot of if you're a part of this post-exilic community? Okay, sorry, let me try that question again. You don't have a lot of possessions. You probably, part of what made Solomon's temple kind of cool was the shininess and the Shekinah glory, but you know. They had no, they had no, where are they going to find all the materials that they once saw in the former house that Solomon had? How many know you and I can live paralyzed by our inadequacy in trying to fulfill God's purposes until we have a revelation that if God gives us a vision for something, he will provide for that something? That was good right there. So God tells this exile community, don't worry about it, you knuckleheads. The silver and gold are mine. If I send you back to rebuild a thing, I'm going to, I own everything. Did you know God owns, he's got everything? But do we really believe it? God is not dependent on our insufficiency or insignificant material resources to accomplish his dynamic glory-filled purposes. And we all said amen. What God is looking for is people who will depend on him for all things so that he can show up in power. That they considered their lack is irrelevant to the Lord because it's all his. The silver and the and remember why is this little ragtag broken bunch of exiles why are they in the land anyway rebuilding because God moved on the heart of a pagan king to decree that it's a word for all the land that this little obscure nation that's been an agitation to all the surrounding nations I'm going to send them to build and then the king Cyrus and Darius they think it was their idea <laughs> how many know God doesn't care what we think oh and by the way through this declaration, God moves on their hearts, and out of the treasury of pagan empires, God resources the building of his temple. I guess what I'm trying to say is the more pertinent matter is that we get a vision and it grips us from the heart of God, and we begin to work by his spirit with what he's saying to do, and we will sit and see the provision of God as we set out to obey his word. Hallelujah. God is not put off by our lack. But he is deeply moved by our faith to believe his promises for us today. Thank you. Oh, and the verse ends and we're done. The glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant 
peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now just to show you about the, 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 the stages of fulfillment, I'm just going to whip through these slides really quick. Because like, we read Haggai 2.9 and go, so like, has this already happened? Or like, is it going to happen? Or is it like sort of already happened? Come on, anyone honest with those questions when they read the prophets? You should be asking those questions because that's why the prophets are always relevant. <laughs> so is this sort of already happened? Look. This literally already happened in part because four years after Haggai's ministry, they finished the second temple. So everyone shake your head and say, okay, partial fulfillment. Shake your head. God already released silver and gold from the nations because He underwrited the rebuilding process and project through these pagan kings who out of their own personal treasury financed the thing. So everyone shake your head at me. Haggai 2.9 has sort of, it's partial fulfilled. And that second temple that was rebuilt under the exiles stood for, I think, some 500-some-odd years. So it functioned, even though there was no Shekinah that ever showed up like it did in Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8, but it functioned in the religious practices of Israel. 500-plus years. And then Herod comes along, who's a fake wannabe king of the Jews, not legitimate heir to the throne. He adds and makes that little dumpy second temple into this magnificent splendor glory bomb not a bomb because it would that would have blown it up but so everyone know that this Agai 2 9 has been partially fulfilled the temple was literally built it was accomplished but like all of this what we've been saying so far there is a deeper and a greater fulfillment that is being fulfilled and will ultimately be fulfilled. Did you know that the Bible says that Christ has actually fulfilled all of the promises associated with the temple? I love this. God in the garden, hanging out with humans, cool of the day, naked and no shame. Yeah? They sin. They're exiled. Angels, no entry. Go into exile. Calls a man Abraham, 400 some odd years later. Sends a man Moses. They build a tabernacle. Moses builds it according to the pattern God shows him. What happens? Glory. Right? Exodus 40. The glory of God shows up. They hang out with God for a few hundred years. They're walking, talking. Then God moves on a heart. guy named David after his own heart. David, I want to build you a house, God, forever that you can dwell with Israel. Nope, too much blood on your hands. Your son's going to build it. Solomon builds a temple. What happens after they get everything arranged and perfect? 1 Kings 8. Glory. It shows up. The, The cloud. The weighty presence of God. God's people sin. They go into exile. The prophet Ezekiel sees the glory of God lift out of the temple and depart in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. The glory that fell is the glory that now left. For 500 plus years, even though this second temple is functioning and operating, there is no verse, there's no evidence that God's Shekinah weighty presence ever filled that second temple ever. Even though they had activity and religious stuff and sacrifice and prayers and offerings, there was never a moment when the cloud came back. 500 years from the Old Testament to the New Testament closing, no prophetic revelation. 
And then a man from Nazareth shows up on the scene. And how does John describe the man from Nazareth? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling. He was God's tabernacle in truest, most dynamic, glorious terms. Jesus shows up as the temple man. Full of the glory of God. Yay. Jesus hangs and dies. Right? The curtain is torn of this temple that God never descended in. Jesus' first message in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it again in three days. In other words, this passage, like almost every prophetic passage, finds a significant fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. How many know Jesus is the greater house full of the greater glory? Okay. You've seen Him, you've seen me. In Him, the fullness of God dwells. And then look what happens. The Bible says that in Christ, you and I, there's another fulfillment. We're built into a temple. Turn to your neighbor and say, nice seeing you, fellow temple stone. The Bible calls us God's house. You have to see there's another fulfillment that Christ is the tabernacle of God, the glory of God. And then through Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, young and old, male and female, become another temple, a place that God dwells and wants to fill with His glory. Yay. And then guess what? There's a future glory. Jesus is going to come and overthrow all of the kingdoms of darkness and remake a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, there's not a temple. Shocker, because there wasn't a temple in the first garden. It's God dwelling with humanity with no barriers or restrictions. So you see Haggai 2.9. Has it been fulfilled? Yeah. Yeah and yeah. How many know we live in this fulcrum, this moment where God wants to build us into his people that house and host his glory? How many know this is why the Bible is so filled with slight opinions on how we're supposed to live together? Why? Why is there no Bible verse in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that says your building should be 27 cubits long by 14 inches? Why is there no, and any time it is in Revelation, it's a prophetic metaphorical picture for the age to come. Why is there no, hey, the color of the carpet should be burgundy. But why is there 49 one another passages, forgive each other, love one another, serve one another? Remember how many passages there were to Moses about what to do with the, the literal tabernacle, the literal temple? You might have fallen asleep when you were reading all of those things. The new covenant equivalent is how we live bears direct testimony to whether or not we realize we're God's new temple. That's a good word. Thank you, Peter. Because I think that makes sense. Love each other. Don't hold grudges. Why? You're God's temple. Because in God's temple, there's no unholy things. Come on, somebody. Go the extra mile with your brother who wants to go. Why? Because you're God's temple. You're the manifestation of His radiance, of His beauty and His glory on the earth. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who's broken. Don't just love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Why? Because you're God's new covenant, new temple people. When the world sees us like they saw the splendor of Solomon's temple, they're to see the glory of God in our midst. 
And if it's not space or location specific, but people specific, how we live as God's temple people really matters. If you agree, say amen. Amen. The whole New Testament is how to live as this new people. And the Bible says that when you and I live out that new identity in Christ, it will be a glory that the world has never seen. And in this place, I will grant peace. What's peace mean? Wholeness, fullness. My friend Aaron always says, Shalom to your dome. One Old Testament scholar says, peace, the idea of shalom, wholeness, restoration, flourishing, fullness, and on and on it goes. It really does encompass all that God wants to do in his people, through his people, and on the earth. This radically restored, reconciled humanity to God's self and neighbor. Peace. God says in this this new temple, seen and experienced in Jesus and now through the Jesus people by the Holy Spirit. I want to grant peace in that place. How many know in a world and cultural moment of chaos, the greatest thing we have to offer is the peace and presence of God working in our lives? Peace. So that was Haggai's second sermon Past, present, future implications. But what does it mean for us today? Three things. Skip, 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 skip. Skip, skip. Skip. What does it mean today? Trust is promise. Come on, how many know if God says, I will, He will? You got to hear that. If he says, I will, he will. Embrace the process. How many know it took them years to rebuild and get the, how many know it takes years to get our stuff straightened out? Am I talking to anybody who's in the middle of the process of rebuilding right now? It's a process. If you get discouraged in the process and you turn back and quit, you'll fail to see the promise fulfilled. Embrace the process. In the process of rebuilding, you'll you'll come into things of your past or your brokenness that the Lord wants to heal if you'll surrender it to Him. As you rebuild and you say yes to His promise to be with us as He was when He delivered them from Egypt and as He would when Christ hung on the cross and He was faithful to raise Him from the dead and as He was to send the Holy Spirit and, and to fill this new covenant, new temple people, so He will be if we embrace the process of rebuilding. Don't give up. Be strong, be strong, be strong. That was our passage this week. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Say it with me. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Thirdly, rely on His presence. Come on, how many know that is what distinguishes us, that God is in our midst, breathing on the whole process of rebuilding. And then walk, don't just dabble in, walk in His peace. How many know today God can take your brokenness this chaos that swirls in your spirit, he can speak a word of peace into your life and then you can walk in that peace moment by moment by moment. Stand up on your feet with me, if you will.
God is not done yet. I will shake. When? In a little while. Wait, you're not going to tell us more? (sighs) What does that mean? Stay awake. How do I stay awake? Oh, just go hang out in some corner all by yourself? No, allow His Spirit to fill you and get to work on what He's saying build. We don't stay awake by isolating. We stay awake in the context of community, giving our hearts and hands and heads, because we want to think about what we're doing. How do we stay awake? We keep our eyes on the one who made the promise. How do we stay awake? By having people we give permission to smack us upside the head when we start getting sleepy. I was at San Diego this week working on my master's degree and um, I literally fell asleep right around the bridge. Like I, I um, didn't swerve or fall. Uh, I was talking to Andrew the next day, just calling him, giving him a little bit of an update. And he goes, yeah, like, I prayed for you last night. I'm like, what time? <laughs> He's like, 10.30-ish. Almost to the second, the exact moment that I nodded off. I mean, I'm not joking. I got home at 11, so it was around 10.30, 10.35, we need. How do we stay awake? By belonging to people who can... Sp- Pray for us, encourage us, provoke us, inspire us, who can catch us when we fall, can lift us when we're low, who can inspire and instruct and encourage us when we're weary and growing tired. Beloved, we need each other. We need each other to stay awake. And then ultimately, how do we stay awake? I believe by giving ourselves fully to God's purposes right here and right now. It's really hard to stay awake Uh, it's really hard to be asleep when you're doing the things God's calling you to do with the people he's calling you to lay your life down with for the purposes to build a kingdom that will never be shaken. Let's build. Lord, I just thank you for this ministry, for the second message of the prophet Haggai. Thank you that glory You want to fill us with your glory. You want this people, us as a community, to be marked by your presence and your peace. So Lord, whatever we need to receive today from your word, whatever your word needs to provoke in us, convict us in, we say, Holy Spirit, have your way. Have your way. God, again, we welcome your shaking if we're building our lives on crummy foundations. We welcome it, God. Lord, for those right now who are in that thin place, they've said yes to your purposes, but they don't know if you're going to pull through and provide. Lord, speak strength into their spirit this this morning. May they experience the strengthening of the Lord. Don't quit. Don't give up. The I will always comes through. Lord, I pray your provision into our family right now, those who are crying out for it. Come in power. Come in power. Lord, we thank you. As you have been with us, you've promised to be with us on into the future as we give ourselves to your purposes together. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for your word that has nourished us today, that provokes us to obedience. In Jesus' name, we all said amen. And amen.